Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, welcome everybody. Let's get going. Let's dig into the text. If you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is where we are today. If you're visiting for the first time today or this is one of your first few Sundays here, you have joined us in the middle of what has been a journey through the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians. And we're almost to the end, and today we're going to be finishing up the second half of chapter 14. And it's important for you to know, if you're just checking us out, uh, and you're here uh, for the first time, or the first few times, that we place a very high value on what we call expositional preaching. In fact, that's the vast majority of what we do here, and that means that what we do on Sunday mornings is we look at a passage of Scripture, usually a book, and we want the point of the message to be the point of the passage. We don't come to the Bible with an idea or a topic to sort of you know, attract you, uh, but we come to the Bible humbling ourselves, putting ourselves under its authority, and trying to find out what God is saying through us, through His Holy Spirit, so that we would make much of Jesus, and we think that's just the best and wisest way to go about it. And so today we find ourselves finishing up one of the more complicated and difficult chapters in the Bible. And uh, so we're in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And chapters 12, 13, and 14 have been a sort of unit that go together that are speaking about the spiritual gifts where Paul is unpacking what is, has been an obvious mess in the Corinthian church. This church was very, very gifted. They were very, very intelligent. They were in, in likely very affluent and they also had many spiritual gifts that God had given to them in His providence so that they might make much of Jesus. But like selfish former pardoned rebels who are still dealing with sin just like us, they were turning God's blessing and they were letting it sort of dead end on them. And in particular, the, this gift of tongues, which we talked extensively about last week. And if you missed last week, we have CDs available. You can also find it on the website. There's notes all out, uh, on the website. Really encourage you to pick that up. In particular, these Corinthians were abusing and misusing the gift of tongues. And so Paul was unraveling that mistake in chapter 14. He starts off in, uh, in chapter 12 by saying that there's a variety of gifts. And God has gifted all of his people in his church for the edifying of the whole body. And then in chapter 13, he talks about that this whole platform that we should operate on as a church body should be love. And then in chapter 14, as we talked about last week and we'll finish up this week, he specifically untangles the knots that they had tied themselves into in the gifts of prophecy in tongues. Today, last week, as Reynolds mentioned, uh, I know it was a long... Uh, I know I preach long, friends. So don't, don't, don't act like this. Does he realize he talks that long? Yes, I do. Um, I, I really don't care about the clock. You know, we blow... Uh, too much of our lives on ridiculous TV junk and garbage, I think we can stand to sit under preaching and teaching for a while. I just, I think we can, all right? And if, you, if, if, if that just, you can't handle that, maybe this isn't the best place for you. I don't know. But, um, uh, but uh, listen, I know it's long. Ten questions. Today, we're just going to answer, ask and answer two questions. So last week, we were untangling the knot of, of what tongues and prophecy are Today, I just want to settle on two questions. is How we as Christians should, should pursue gifts today, and then how should these gifts, what should they look like in 
our context today. But before we do that, we're just going to work our way through verses 26 through 40, make some comments, and we'll settle down on these two questions. Before I read and pray and then work my way back to the Scripture, here's my burden always, okay? Especially when we're in the middle of a theological forest, like 1 Corinthians 14. Friends, the Bible is not about individual topics. It's not it's not, a, it's not Aesop's fables that you come to for some little helpful tip on how to get through Tuesday. The Bible is about Jesus, right? The Old Testament is about Jesus. In fact, it, read Luke chapter 24. Jesus, after his resurrection, saunters up to two disciples on their way to the road to Emmaus and spends that seven-mile walk unpacking for them the glory of his person and work from the Old Testament. So you know what Genesis is about? Jesus. You know what Leviticus is about? Jesus. You know what the Exodus, it's about Jesus. Deuteronomy is about Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. You know what 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is about? It's ultimately about Jesus. These gifts that God has given to the church so that they would be mutually edified and so that this sort of beautiful aroma of humility and, and Christ-exalting passion would exist in the church. And so here's my burden all the time is that when we find ourselves in a, in a dense sort of theological forest, like chapter 14, I don't want us to lose the forest from the trees. Just this week, I had a conversation with a sister who's been attending church here and had with her in the service last week two people who have never really heard the gospel, don't know much about Jesus other than their influence with this particular lady. And they were here from Indonesia or Malaysia. And, uh, and so... That was God and his providence decided to have them come on the day that we were talking about tongues and prophecy, and I talked for an hour and 20 minutes and had 10 questions. Yikes. But so here's my whole burden, friends, is that today we understand the gospel and how God wants to give us these gifts as a church so that he might make much of himself among us. All right, well, uh, let me pray, or let me read, and then I'll pray, and then I'll work our way back through this. And I really, as Reynolds said, I really want to encourage you to think about coming tonight to our Q&A at 6 o'clock. We're just going to shuck it down. It'll be real informal. Uh, some of you have emailed questions. If you haven't emailed it and you just want to come tonight, maybe a question comes up today in your mind, uh, come tonight. Let's shuck it down. Let's let our hair down and let's, um, let's any question, any answer, uh, whatever on this topic of spiritual gifts, I want to uh, try and help us out pastorally think about these issues more closely. All right, well, let me read, and then we will pray and work our way back through it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. If there is no one to interpret... Let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets and the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman, women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. 
Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Well, lots to talk about. Uh, order in the church, women keeping silence, and decency and order. Awesome. All right. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Thank you, Jesus. You are the eternal word. Father, you have given us your son as a sacrifice on the cross, as a substitute for our rebellion. And by his work, he turned your justice and wrath and anger for our rebellion into favor for all of his people, for those that would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus alone for their right standing with you. Lord, these gifts that you have given us, in particular the gift of salvation, are breathtaking. They're spectacular. They are beyond our ability to ponder fully and understand. But you have showed us your truth that is sufficient for us for life and salvation, and you've given us everything that we need for godliness. And part of what you have given us is your word and the gifts to edify your church. Help us now, regardless of which side of the theological spectrum we are on, help us now to humble ourselves. Help us now to think through these issues clearly and earnestly as a church. I pray specifically, Lord, for people in this room that do not know Jesus Or maybe they just, by an impulse of your Holy Spirit that they didn't even realize, they just thought they were trying to live a better life, they've decided that, hey, maybe I should go try and start going to church so that I can become a better person and straighten out my life. Lord, I pray that you would help that brother or sister realize that you've got something far bigger than just self-help involved. You want to save their soul from their rebellion and from eternal separation from you. And I pray that today, by your kind grace, that even as we're talking about order and spiritual gifts, as the church gathers, that you would show them Christ so that they would turn away from their sin and turn towards trust in you. For the Christians in this room, in particular those that call Crosspoint home, I do pray, Lord, that you would warm our hearts for affection for one another and that you would stir our hearts with a passion for all that you have for us as believers and as a local church. Help us now as we think through these words that are your very words. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's work our way back through this text, and then we're going to settle on two questions. Verse 26, Paul writes, after his long exposition about prophecy in tongues. Remember, just a a quick summary. Prophecy is a very practical and very important gift in the church that's still in operation today, we believe, and it is merely the bringing to mind, the spontaneous bringing to mind of a truth of God that God will bring to mind to a person in the church to encourage, upbuild, and console the people of God. It can take many different forms, whether it's just everyday conversation. Maybe it can be interlaced in a sermon or a teaching. Or maybe it's more pronounced and, and uh, a little bit more of a powerful feel to it. But prophetic speech or the gift of prophecy 
is the spontaneous bringing of, of mind, something that God has given a person to share in the language of the people that are gathered that brings clarity, upbuilding, encouragement, and edification to the body. It's a powerful, uh, spontaneous truth that God wants to reveal to His people. Tongues are unknown languages or potentially known languages that maybe uh, aren't spoken by the people there that God gives on two different sort of functions. One, for the edification of a believer privately, or if it is spoken out publicly in a gathering of Christians, this tongue uh, should be interpreted for the edification of the body. So in that sense, the interpreted tongue that would happen in a gathering of Christians, when it is interpreted, is sort of functionally equivalent to a prophecy in the language of the people there. And so now Paul, after breaking that down in the first 25 verses, now wants to regulate the gift of tongues, specifically this public speaking of tongues when Christians gather, in verses 27 through 28. And then he wants to regulate prophecy in 29 through 33. So let's look at verse 26 again. It says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So Paul is interested here right away, we can tell in verse 26, he's interested in the operation of all the gifts that God has given coming to bear for the good of the whole church. We talked about in 1 Corinthians 12 that all of us, if we're Christians, have been given a gift and that, that Paul is very interested here in stirring up the use of the gifts in the church. And we're going to talk about how that should work in our context. And, I, and I, as I've been studying this and thinking through this, I'm, I'm actually rather chastened and convicted by the Holy Spirit that we do not do this very well in the American church today and more specifically in Crosspoint. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But Paul's interested in the operation of the gifts, that everybody's got something that, that, that they bring to the table for the building up of, of the body. Verse 27 and 28, then, he regulates this gift of public tongues in the church. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, and by the way, if that word tongue sort of trips you up, that word tongue might be better translated just languages. If anyone has the gift of languages, whether it's a heavenly language or a known language, if anyone has the gift of languages, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So what Paul is saying here is that when this gift of languages or this gift of tongues is publicly spoken when Christians are gathered together, it should always be with this other gift that he mentions in 1 Corinthians 12. Remember 7 through 11 where he talks about these nine gifts, which again are not an exhaustive list, but are nine of the gifts that Paul mentions that are obviously evident in the Corinthian church. He says that when this public tongue is spoken when Christians gather, it should also be accompanied by the gift of interpretation, where then that interpreter speaks in the language of the majority of the people there an interpretation of that tongue that is spoken. And so there's a couple things that we can, that we can glean from just these few verses. The gift of tongues should only function publicly when Christians are gathered when there is an interpreter present or when there's somebody that the group knows has this particular gift. Friends, this assumes a very high degree of familiarity amongst the people. And we're going to talk again a little bit more about this when I ask and answer these two questions at the end. 
But I think there's a bit of work that we have to do to think about how that works out for us because Paul is probably speaking to a group of about 50 or 60 Christians in the Corinthian church. They were probably meeting together in a house church. And so how do we work that out when we've got several hundred people gathered together and we don't know many of the folks that are in this room? We'll get to that in just a second. And the other thing I want you to notice in verses 27 and 28 is that public tongue speakers are under control. Paul clearly implies that because they wait their turn. So I think some of us who maybe grew up in a church where spiritual gifts were not emphasized or uh, were felt to be no longer in operation may, uh, I think, understandably look at some of the excesses of the Pentecostal charismatic movement where people sort of act crazy. You probably, you know, we're just flipping around the TV one day and you happened upon uh, TBN and you just saw some goofy, strange excess and you sort of think that, uh, that this sort of strange, out-of-control, ecstatic-like tongue-speaking speech must be it. Well, Paul is saying, no, that is absolutely not. In fact, I think most of that, a vast majority of that stuff is sort of learned behavior that is really self-indulgent. And in fact, that's the very thing that Paul is trying to correct. But he does say here that these tongue speakers who have this gift can actually wait their turn. So it's not like the Holy Spirit comes over a person and they're in some sort of robotic trance. It is something that this tongue speaker, obviously, it's implied here, can control, can start and stop and wait their turn. And he says there that at most two or three should do it and then someone should interpret. What should we make of the, of the numbers does that mean that if you're in a gathering of Christians, and again, we'll talk about what that context might look like in Crosspoint, and say four people spoke in a tongue, that all of a sudden that's unbiblical? Well, I don't think so. I think that probably Paul is just giving them a sort of general instruction there. Uh, I think some Christians have interpreted that to mean that there should only be two or three. Um, I don't think so. I think Paul is just sort of laying out in this context where there seem to be a lot of eager tongue speakers to sort of regulate their meeting so as to shift their focus off of this gift back to the gospel and God the giver. So uh, tongues can be controlled, and tongues when spoken in a gathering of Christians and not a private prayer language should be interpreted. All right, now he regulates prophecy. Let's go to verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And so Paul says, let a brother or sister who has a gift of prophecy speak this spontaneous truth or this revelation that God wants to speak through this person to upbuild and stir and console and encourage the body. And then, this is really critical, let the others weigh what is said. Last week I mentioned that we need to look at a difference between Old Testament prophets, capital P, noun, people, and the New Testament gift of prophecy. There's, there's not really a correlation. The correlation between the Old Testament prophet is the New Testament apostles. And the Old Testament prophets was a gift, an office, that God used these men to speak His very words that then became the 39 books that we know of as the Old Testament. And they were prophets with a special authority by God to speak His very words that we now know is the collection of the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, Paul says that, uh, that, and Jesus says that He's called these apostles that then have this special authority to actually write the New Testament books, the 27 books that we know of as the New Testament. And so every book in the New Testament 
comes through the hand of one of the apostles or through one of their ministry associates and so has their authority. And so Paul now is speaking about this New Testament gift of prophecy which is subordinate to the Word of God. And why do we know that? Because he says there that two or three people who have a prophetic word to speak should speak and then let the others weigh what is said. What does that word weigh mean? It means literally to separate, to judge, and to evaluate carefully. It even has this connotation of doubt, this thing. Now, if the New Testament gift of prophecy was on the same level and authority as the Word of God, Paul would never tell the people in the Corinthian church to sort of doubt it and evaluate it and parse it out, take the good and separate the bad, because we we have to come to the Word humbly. But what he's presupposing here is that this gift of prophecy, this spontaneous truth that God is giving a particular person to speak to the church, is going to have some, some, maybe some error in it. Maybe there's going to be a little dirty bathwater that we got to throw out, but we're going to keep the baby. In fact, in Acts chapter 21, Paul wants to go to Jerusalem, and it says in Acts chapter 21 verse 4 that the other disciples spoke to him through the Spirit, telling him not to go to Jerusalem, and Paul says, no, I'm going to go to Jerusalem anyway. And so if that was a perfect word, authoritative word of God through these disciples, Paul would have never disobeyed it. So we have this sense that prophetic speech is is something that God uses through the filter of a finite, imperfect person that we as the church must then evaluate in a way, much like, friends, my sermon. Look, everything I say is not necessarily right on. And so you don't, at least I hope you don't, accept everything I say as sort of etched in stone. Like, you know, this is not tablet speech right here. This is just my imperfect offering of studying God's Word and giving you a teaching, right? And then if I say something whack, right, you should should look at it in the Scriptures as the Brians do, and if I'm wrong, then, then you should call me on that. And if I'm wrong enough, you shouldn't just walk. You should run to another church, right? You should evaluate what's going on here. Take the good, cut off the bad. And that's what Paul says we should do with these prophetic words. Verse 30 then, he goes on and says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, in other words, this is some sort of spontaneous piece of knowledge that God wants to share apart from a teaching or uh, something that might be more in the shape of a sermon, God gives a revelation, it's made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So it seems here like there's sort of this sort of humility and sort of... um, uh, you know, they're kind of interrupting each other. You know, there's this sort of real gentle humility that's between these prophets. They're not just trying to be seen and be shown to be spiritual. One guy's sort of saying something, and the other guy, God gives him something. He's like, whoa, 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 just a second. And then he, so there's this sort of cordial atmosphere here where there's this deep humility where the focus is not on a person but on what God may want to share. And there's this humility in this other brother who's sitting there evidently sharing a word that might not be totally correct. And then the other one gets this revelation. And so do you see this, this sort of humble mixture that Paul is calling for in the church? Verse 31, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And so again, this prophetic word is given so that God's people would be encouraged, built up, and consoled, as we read about last week. 
verse 32, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. And so we shouldn't read that word prophets as like a prophet in the Old Testament. The word in Greek in the New Testament used for prophet was just sort of a common Greek word of somebody that was a sort of herald or, or somebody that, that had something to share. It does not carry the same authority that the Old Testament office of prophets. Really, it's not even the same word. Two different languages. But in English, we have the same word for like prophet, for like Ezekiel or Jeremiah, that we would say for the gift of prophecy in the New Testament. But two different words, really two different, uh, two different really functions, although similar in a sense, but one has the authority in the Old Testament, and this is just a gift. So, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirit of prophets, or maybe better said, those who have the gift of prophecy are subject to that person who has the gift of prophecy. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Again, the gifts do not take control of a person and make them ecstatic or out of control. Here, it's obvious that the gift of prophecy on a particular person can be started and stopped and that they can show deference to one another. And so we again see the purpose of prophecy, encouragement. And the results of prophecy should not be the results of these words of prophecy in the gathered church should not be confusion, but peace and clarity. All right, well, let's venture on now in the second half of 33 and the next few verses, which seem to be confusing, but upon further inspection or not. It's about women and their role. I know you've been waiting. Some of you haven't even listened to anything I've said. You're like, whoa, what? <laughs> Is that in there? Is that in your copy of the Bible? It says, it's in all the churches, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So what's Paul saying here? Well, first of all, let me reference you to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, a couple months ago when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I spoke about this, about our complementarian view of men and women in the home and in the church. And, uh, and so if you miss those messages or you're new and we're wondering, you're wondering where we stand on a woman's role in the church and how a woman can speak in church, I refer you back to that message where we, uh, we unpack this very clearly. And let me just summarize by saying that, again, this is a sort of a theological hot potato, but there are those that we would call egalitarians who believe that all offices, pastor, elder, bishop, and all sort of speech in church is open to anybody, male or female. And then you have over uh, on the other side of the spectrum, complementarianism, which believes, it, which is where we are, where we believe that women and men are equal and that God has gifted men and women. But the specific offices of pastor and elder are clearly scripturally reserved just for men. And we find that from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 where it clearly gives the qualifications of an elder, pastor, bishop. Those three words kind of all go together. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2 it says, Paul says, I don't permit a woman to uh, have authority or teach a man. And some of us, some people I think mistakenly interpret that scripture while Paul's just sort of addressing that particular cultural situation in Ephesus. The reason why I don't think that's the case is because the next sentence, Paul then alludes to the fact that he's drawing this truth out because Adam was formed first, 
before Eve. And so Paul is going to the truth of the order of God's creation to draw out this basis from which he says that men should have this humble sort of authority in the home and church over the women. And we talked when I preached on those messages about how men often abuse this authority and the authority the man should exer- a man should exercise in the church and in the home should be a Christ-like, self-sacrificing uh, authority and that this frees women to actually be biblically feminine and lets them flourish in their gifts. But Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, remember when we talked about head coverings? Remember those exciting messages? You remember that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 5, Paul seems to imply clearly that a woman can pray and prophesy in church. She just has to have a head covering on. So he says it in the negative. He says that I do not permit a woman to pray or prophesy if she's uncovered, if her head is uncovered. So the obvious implication is, is that they can pray or prophesy if their head is covering. And remember we talked about what this head covering meant. It was this sort of attitude of submission to authority in the church and in the home. So Paul is encouraging in 1 Corinthians 11, prayer publicly and prophetic speech of women. They just need to do it in a posture of submission and humility in the home and in the church. But here in 1 Corinthians 14, it sounds like he's going against that. And he's saying that the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak. So has Paul gone schizophrenic on us? Did he forget what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 11? Oh my gosh, is the Bible not inspired? Is there more than one author of 1 Corinthians? Did the early church make a mistake? No. I think the solution to this seeming contradiction is very clear. The context, listen to me clearly now, the context of the silence that Paul is calling for in women in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 relates directly back to the preceding verses in verse 29 where Paul says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. And so the silence that Paul commands women to have in this instance is not all speech, not praying, not prophesying. In fact, I think Paul would want women to prophesy. But then the sort of authoritative judging of these prophetic words then is ultimately resting upon the male elders of the church. And so what I think clearly Paul is saying here is that women should speak in church. Women should pray. Women should prophesy, but they should do it in a sort of posture that is fitting. And then these male leaders of the church, then, who are responsible for the doctrinal direction of the church, that type of weighing, judging speech is reserved for that office and for the men of the church. And so, uh, uh, what I think clearly is happening here is Paul is not contradicting himself. He is saying that women shouldn't speak in that sort of way. And when we see it that way, it lines up very clearly with Paul's admonition in the rest of Scripture that women should pray and prophesy and be gifted and their gifts should, should, should spill out into the church. But the, uh, the, the responsibility for leading a church ultimately in an elder-like way and weighing these things rests on the male leaders of the church. If you have more questions about that, I will be glad to to sit down with you uh, much more thoroughly uh, later on. Verse 36, 
he then starts to chastise the church for their arrogance. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. I love this because Paul is so humble, but now it's like he, he starts talking a little bit of smack to the Corinthians, right? I mean, he, in 1 Corinthians 4, he talks about how he's so humble that, you know, he's just the, the, the refuse of all things. But now, because he has this sort of brokenhearted boldness and because he's jealous for the Corinthians not to divert into air, he starts talking a little smack with them. And he says, hey, if you don't believe what I said, oh, you, oh, oh, you think you got the, the direct line to heaven? Well, I'm an apostle, so if anybody contradicts me, you're wrong, Holmes. You're wrong. That's basically what he's saying. I mean, I love that. And so there's, I think there's a lesson in that. I didn't intend to say this, but the sort of false humility that pervades the church today. Oh, well, you know, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, friends, there are things in the scriptures that we need to be clear about. They're, they're absolutely clear, and we need not soft pedal on. And so if you go to, if you don't stick here because I preach too long or because we don't play the songs that you like or whatever, and you go somewhere else, and you find a church where the preacher can't get up and say, this is the word of God, friends, there's something wrong with that. Now, there are areas, secondary truths, where we need to exercise charitability and generosity towards one another. But Paul here, he gets on the mound, he winds up, and he throws a fastball. He throws it high and tight, right at the Corinthians' chin. Man, this is a brushback pitch. And so we need to be people that can say hard things clearly. He says, look, God, I'm an apostle. And this is God's truth. Believe it, punks. Believe it. It's basically what he says. For their good. This is a stern rebuke and warning from Paul for the Corinthians to not elevate what they perceive to be their gifting and revelations above his authority as an apostle. Friends, we see this in much of a sliver and stream of the church today. You just turn on a Christian television channel and you hear these self-proclaimed apostles and prophets saying that they have a word to the Lord that you should send your money into them and build this humana humana so they can buy a jet and do this goofy stuff and buy these crazy suits and all this junk, friends. And they claim a sort of authority. They're overreaching on it. And that's evidently what was maybe happening in these Corinthian, this Corinthian church is they were overreaching and they were puffing themselves up by this some sort of super spiritual authority. Friends, if, if, if God gifts somebody that one of the first fruits that should work out in their life is a humility. And Paul here is saying, hey, it, God has gifted you, but these things are under the apostolic authority of the word that I'm writing to you that then later became the New Testament letters of Paul. Clearly, then, their gifts of prophecy and tongues were subordinate to the scriptures, which we now know of as the New Testament. And then he finishes in verses 39 and 40. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. We should clearly earnestly desire these gifts to be at work in our church. And if you're wondering about where we stand and why we believe that the gifts have continued, I handled that question last week. Uh, we're, we're very, uh, uh, we, we, we love very much Christians. In fact, there are some national leaders of the church who I love very, very much, uh, personalities and men who I believe God has gifted very much who believe that the gifts have ceased, and I, I humbly disagree with them. And if you're wondering where we stand on that and why we believe that, you can refer to last week's message where I answered that question, one of the first two questions. We believe that the gifts should continue 
and that they should not be forbidden. So that brings us now, finally, to these two questions. How should we pursue these gifts today, and how should they function at Crosspoint? First, how should we pursue these gifts today as individuals? Friends, I think this is where Christians overcook it a lot. I think we should pursue them earnestly, as the scriptures tell us. I think we should pursue spiritual gifts, whether it's maybe the nine that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12 or the ones that are listed in Romans chapter 12 or any particular gift that God has given you, that you sense that God has given you to bring to bear on the building up of the body so that the local expression of Christ's body can make much of him. How do you pursue, how do you cultivate that? I think you do it in just simplicity. You you connect yourself to a vibrant Christian community that's preaching the word and ask your friends what your gifts are. And then pursue God. You ask, we should ask God. We should regularly ask God for him to gift us. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, he says, ask and it will be given to you. He says, he's a good father. He knows how to give good gifts. His children ask for a loaf of bread, he won't give them a rock. If they ask for a fish, he won't give them a snake. And so we should ask God, does that mean that he is now obligated to give us, is there some sort of certain formula, and I do this, then I, then, no. As we ask God, we must humble ourselves and realize that he is sovereign. So you may be asking for some particular spiritual gift, and God in his sovereignty may not give it to you. That's what Paul says at the end of chapter 12. He says they're all going to prophesy, are all going to speak in tongues, are all going to have this gift. The obvious implication is it's a rhetorical question that means no. And so you should come to the Father asking for your heart's desire, but you should come humbly realizing that maybe God does not have that gift intended for you. And that you shouldn't be hung up on that. And what Paul is advocating in these three chapters is that there's such a culture of humility and Christ-centeredness on the church that people aren't caught up who has and doesn't have a particular spiritual gift. That's why I think the Pentecostal stream of the church has, 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 has really missed it in a lot of cases because they make such an emphasis of tongues that they create a sort of varsity and junior varsity group in their church where there's all these people pursuing this one particular gift, which Paul clearly says not all people are going to have. And then when they don't have it, they sort of feel this second-class citizenship. And those that do have it, which oftentimes is just a mimicked learned behavior because it's so misunderstood in the church. I do believe the gift of tongues is present. I'm just saying that lots of what passes for tongues in our church is just mimicked behavior. Then those people hang their hat on that because they feel like they have some gift. And then a whole segment of God's people are off in this corner totally missing the boat of what God wants to do in the church to build them up. And so I think we need to step back from that and just be simple and ask God with God-centered humility. So do you have a gift? Do you know what it is? Connect yourself in vital Christian community. Get to know people. Don't just be somebody who dips in on Sunday morning and dips out right afterwards. It doesn't work that way, friends. You can't cultivate. You can't grow it in that culture. Know people. Be known. Let your life be examined. Ask God for gifts. Make it a regular practice to, after the message, come down and ask God, God, give me all that you have so that Jesus might be made much of through my life and I might encourage the church. Make that a regular practice. Just make that a regular heartbeat and prioritize the word and the gospel over TV and constant vacations and recreation. You can't just come into God just every now and again because you went to a Bible study that talked about this, or you're a church that believes this, and just ask God to give it to you, and the rest of your life is totally unconnected towards earnestness in God. It doesn't work that way. 
You can't live a life of carnality and idolatry in every other area and then just have a theological position and think that God's going to give you some gift. It doesn't work that way, friends. Pursue God in earnestness and simplicity and humility and let's work it into the very fabric of our sanctification and ask God to give us all that he has for us. Secondly, then how should these gifts function at Crosspoint? Now, this is a difficult question, friends, and something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. I think there is a wide gap between what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14 and what happens here on Sunday mornings in our gathered sort of worship on Sunday mornings as an American church. I don't think we necessarily need to feel bad about that, but it just looks different for us today. When the Corinthians gathered, there was probably 40 or 50 of them in a room, and they were very likely spending hours together on their worship day, and they were eating meals together, and they were sharing, and it was not a two-hour thing, right? It didn't look like we do it. It were songs and then a sermon. It was a day of worship spent together. And there was a high degree of familiarity. And there was much more time in their gathered worship for everybody to contribute. Now, it may be an indictment of the way we have developed as a culture that we're much more pragmatic and we just come in and do our thing and a couple songs, trying to sing the ones that we like and then a sermon. And, and, and listen, we, we may have bowed down to the, to the false god of pragmatism in our American church. I understand that. But I think that what we do on Sunday mornings is helpful. And I don't think that there's any real sense that we should really strive to alter. Because we have several hundred people and we have a much higher degree of unfamiliarity. And we have many more people that are coming into our gathered worship on a Sunday morning who may or may not know Jesus. And so I think that the way we do it is a functional and good way for us to do it on Sunday mornings. But I don't think that the context of Sunday morning is the place where some of these more revelatory gifts like tongues and prophecy most helpfully function in the American church today. And so then, where should they function? Well, we could say that, well, we've got small groups. Let's all get together in small groups. You should all join a small group. And in the small group, uh, there should be this atmosphere of trust and humility and edification. Well, I would agree with that. I think that Small groups is a great place for spiritual gifts to operate. But I think that's insufficient. Paul is clearly writing here to the gathered church. And so this has chastened me. This has convicted me. I think we as a church wisely need to think about other contexts, other regular worship gatherings of the church where the focus is on prayer and praise and the mutual edification and the sharing of the gifts that God has given us. And I personally, as a pastor, I was just met a young couple today, and they said, how long have you been here at Crosspoint? I said, well, I've been here since the beginning. We started it. And so anything that's wrong with Crosspoint is my fault. And I think one of the things that, that uh, I am chastened as, as I read these scriptures, is that we as a body whether it's occasional Sunday night gatherings, whether it's maybe a Wednesday night prayer and praise thing. I'm not saying that we just start a Wednesday night service or a Sunday night service. I don't think, honestly, I don't think that would be wise. But where there is some sort of measured, thoughtful, consistent time when we as Christians 
can gather together outside of maybe the main teaching hour. And I don't think we need to apologize about the structure of our service. But where we can gather outside of this more structured, more unfamiliar public Sunday morning gathering. And then really come together with the thought that we're going to pray and we're going to praise God and we're going to share and we're going to pray for one another and we're going to give room for this type of thing to happen. And friends, I am freshly chastened by the Holy Spirit, even as I'm going through that, that we don't have that context really at Crosspoint. And so we can just say, well, God, shucks. Let's go on to chapter 15. Or we can wisely try and think about how God might want to do this. Amongst us. And I think that's what he would have us to do. And so I encourage us as a church to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And I would encourage you to pray for us as leaders to think about how we might wisely build into this fabric of our church these contexts where these gifts can be brought to bear. Finally, I end on this, friends. This is my passion. Because I think Paul offers chapters 12, 13, and 14 as an aside. He's correcting their abuse. Then after he ends chapter 14, he gets right back into the gospel in chapter 15. We handle these first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians over Easter because it's such a beautiful passage. But then he, he's like he's eager to get back to the heart of the matter. He says in verse, chapter 15 of verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so, friends, whatever God may give us as gifts as a church are all given for the purpose of pointing us to this issue of first importance. If he's given you the gift of prophecy, he's given it so that you might share it with the body so that the body would be built up and encouraged and consoled to long more earnestly for Christ and his gospel. If he's given you a tongue and then he's given you a gift of interpretation that may take place in another setting outside of Sunday morning at Crosspoint, he's given it to you for a reason so that the body of Crosspoint might be built up and encouraged so that we would be people who are an absolutely clear culture, not a confusing culture, but a clear culture that this very gospel is the very thing that rings clear from among us. And that gospel is this, friends, that all of us, listen to me, this is, this is so critical. The gospel is the good news that God is sovereign and good. He's the creator of all things. And as a pinnacle of his creation, he created you and me and every human being that's ever existed. But all of us, all of us except for Christ, who lived as the only perfect human, all of us from Adam and Eve on down have rebelled against God. We have become glory thieves whether we're public criminals, criminals arrested, felons in prison, or terrorists in the Middle East, or whether we're just good little church kids that grew up in the South, all of us have made idols out of ourselves. We have all robbed God of His glory. Some of us, some of us run from God with self-indulgent, lustful sin. Some of us run from God by trusting in our own morality and righteousness. And this, friends, is called sin, and that sin separates us from God. 
It banishes us from His presence. And it brings the sure, the sure judgment of His wrath and fury against our rebellion. And Christ then comes to receive the punishment that should have been ours on the cross. That's what Paul says in these early verses of chapter 15, that Christ died for our sins. He became the perfect human. He obeyed where we rebelled. He stored up righteousness, righteousness that we could never store up. And he allowed his perfect righteousness to be crucified on a cross. And on that cross, he literally became sin for us. He bore the wrath of God's righteousness against our rebellion on the cross. And he satisfied it. He, he, he extinguished it all. He extinguished God's justice and anger and righteousness and wrath for all those that would turn and trust in him. Friends, this is not a universal salvation. Everybody doesn't get this. Clearly then, the Bible goes on to say that only those who trust in Christ, who repent, which is a biblical word that means you turn away from your sin and self-righteousness and then have faith alone in what Jesus has done on the cross, only those that have done that are the ones that receive life with Christ forever. The rest, the Bible says in John chapter 3 very clearly, that the wrath of God remains on them. Friends, does this mean you need to be sinless to come to Christ? No. It means that you need to, as that old 1800s British theologian said, you need to take God's side against your sin rather than sin's side against a dreaded God. Friends, the reason the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the church is so that they can make much of Jesus. And so that when they come together, what is clear, what echoes from them is the only piece of news that really matters that everybody who has ever lived must turn from their sin and trust in Jesus have you done that have you done that young lieutenant you can max the PT test and you're a stud man you're a stud you can navigate through those points and land nav course at Fort Benning you may have a ranger tab I remember those days man you enter the room with your left shoulder first so everybody can see that you got a ranger tab and you have, you have lived your life trusting in your own strength. That'll get you nowhere, young man. Young mom in your late 30s, you married a successful guy, you're cute. You got a cute little figure and cute little kids with little monogram initials on their shirts. And you ride around in a cool little van. And your kids are cute, man. They make the all-star teams. Everything's cute in your life. It's just cute. And your cuteness may be your biggest obstacle to God because you have lived a life of just casual Christianity where you trust in your own cuteness and wisdom and wealth. And the very thing that you call a blessing is in fact God's curse on you because it's going to be God's, it's going to be the biggest obstacle for you to truly have faith in Christ. Young mom, don't trust in that. Old cat man who's been in the church forever, and you've got a resume as long as the scroll of Isaiah of how many Sunday school classes you've taught. And that's your first thing, man. You know, I've been doing this. As a deacon here, as a Sunday school. But friends, that, that, that means nothing if you haven't truly trusted in Christ. You see, friends, we're all idolaters. Some of us pursue flesh and sin and obvious lust. And some of us pursue self-righteousness. And Christ died for it. 
And he gives his church gifts so that they might make that clear in this foggy world of idolatry. Friends, have you trusted in Christ? How do you do that? You raise your hand, you repeat some words after me. Well, that may be helpful. Here's how you do it. You turn away from yourself, you turn away from sin, and you look to Jesus. Trust him right now, believe. Right now, believe. Believe in Jesus right now, even as I'm speaking. Let your heart be warmed, friends. Let your heart be warmed for what Christ has done for you on the cross. Are you seeing Jesus for the first time? Is it making sense to you? I don't care if you've grown up in church, man. Is your heart being warmed with what Christ has done for you? Friends, I believe that means that God is making you alive. He's taking your old, dead, selfish heart, and he's giving you his new heart of flesh so that you can exercise faith in him. Do that right now. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. You must believe in Jesus. Nothing else matters, friends. Believe in Jesus. Turn from yourself and turn towards faith in Christ. Even now. Even now. Let's pray. Father, uh, these words from Paul in chapter 14 are complicated and difficult but they're necessary for us. So Lord, would you help us now, for the Christians in this room, would you help us untangle these words with the end in mind that we would not receive more gifts from you so that we can prop ourselves up in spiritual pride. but that we can humbly decrease so that you would increase and that we can make much of Jesus in our lifetime together as a body of believers. Lord, I'm especially jealous right now that your Holy Spirit would fall on people so that they would see you for the first time. For the person who wandered into this room who felt like they were outside of your grace, God, would you lift their eyes from their self-absorption and let them see that Jesus died for that sin. And he commands them right now to turn from that sin, turn from self-trust and to trust in you. For the young man or woman that you have gifted with a good mind and a strong body and or they've cruised through life, they've graduated from college and uh, you know, they've added a little bit of Christianity to their life but basically they're just still idolaters. They trust in themselves. Lord, would you, would you cause them to turn from self and to trust in you. Because that upper middle class young couple who's cruising along, feeling like they can sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus and maybe ask for a few spiritual gifts and you know, just kind of play the game. God, would you jolt them from their subconscious self-reliance and would you cause them to see Jesus? What a pity it would be to be a member of a church for all your life and not truly be saved. What a horrible way. What a horrible way to meet reality, to lull yourself to sleep and on that day stand before you and have you say that you never knew us. Lord, I pray that I would not be the case for anybody in this room. Do that for me, God. Do that for me, Lord. I so easily subconsciously fall back on my role as a pastor or the, the little bit of biblical knowledge that you've given me and I... And I subconsciously prop myself up on those things. But God, would you, would you kick those stilts out from underneath me so that I would trust in Christ alone? Lord, I'm confident that I've repented 
for salvation, but as Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that the whole of the Christian life, not just the beginning, is one of repentance. So God, I come to you afresh, asking you to purge me of self-reliance and, 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 and self-absorption. And God, would you stir in my heart and the hearts of my friends an affection for Jesus. God, give us gifts as a church. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us. God, would your daughters and would your sons prophesy and would your people be gifted, God, not so that Crosspoint would be some sort of church that people look at, God, as some, as some uh, spiritual people, but God, that we would be lowered and you would be exalted and Christ, the clear truth of the gospel would ring forth from this place because this city, this world needs the gospel. God, would you do that? Would you do that? Would you humble us, God? And would you give us all that you intend to give us so that we can make much of you. And I pray these things, Lord, for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.